If you have your Bibles with you, you can open with me to Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that Paul's instruction through the guidance of the Holy Spirit would instruct us. Father, I pray You would help us understand our freedom in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would understand the good news of the Gospel this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who did Jesus come to save us from? Who did Jesus come to save us from? You could say, what did Jesus come to save us from? Or who? Why did Christ come? You could say, Jesus came to save us from the devil. That deceiver that deceives man, turns people away from Christ, that Jesus came to disarm him, take away his weapons as he died on the cross for sinners. The accuser, his favorite weapon, his accusation, now is taken out of his hand as the Christian can say, yes, I'm a sinner, but Jesus was not and He took my place on the cross. A person could say, Jesus came to save us from the devil. One could also say, Jesus came to save us from God, from the Father. Because our sin has so offended God that one sin against an eternal God deserves eternal punishment. And God is just. He cannot shuffle sin under the rug. Therefore, Christ came to pay the price to take our sins on Himself, swallow up the wrath of God that we deserve so that we could become part of God's family. Our sin could be taken away. We could dwell with the Father because Christ has satisfied the justice for our sins. We could say that Christ came to save us from God. You know, you could say Christ came to save us from sin. Sin is something interesting. It's not a person. 
yet it lives in persons. It lives in us. And that's getting closer to what we're going to look at this morning. Christ came to save us from ourselves. Think about it for a minute. If you had no sin in you, Satan would not be a threat to you. If you had no sin in you, there'd be no foothold Satan could get in your life. There's no temptation that he could draw out that little inkling of evil for you to come after if you never sinned. If you never sinned, you don't have to fear standing before God with your life. So we need a salvation from ourselves. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We are not sinners because we've committed sins. It's a part of our very nature. Sin flows out of us because we're born into sin. That's who we are. How in the world can you and I be rescued from ourselves? From our selfishness. Selfishness ruins people's lives. Whatever sort of ruin you have in your life right now is the result of either your selfishness or someone else's selfishness. Sin is always selfish. Who's going to rescue us from us? Who's going to rescue us from our own selfishness? You know, if you're a parent and you've raised young children... The thing you see that's most natural, as cute as they are, as much as you love them, the one thing you have to say, the trait that marks them more than any other trait, is selfishness. I don't know how many times I've sat there and looked at those cute little girls and said, you're so selfish, as though I'm surprised that these four little girls weren't born sinless. That at the very core of their nature is, I want what I want. We need to be rescued from ourselves. This morning, the theme of this message is freedom. Being freed from the slavery of yourself and specifically of yourself trying to keep the law and please God by your own strength and own power, by rule keeping. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. I want to show you this principle in another text before we go to ours. This is uh, one you've heard me share many times, but I think it's profound. 
Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. Here's the reason that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So there you have it. One of the reasons Jesus came was so that you could stop living for yourself to be rescued from your own selfishness. Because selfishness doesn't promise life and happiness, but it promises despair. True happiness is selflessness for the sake of others. Jesus died so that you could be saved from yourself. We're going to consider how that may be true. God's purpose for you is to be free to quit considering yourself as first and to consider others and God's will for your life as number one. So I trust that if you're like me, and I know that you are because the text says you are, you need to know what is in these verses. What does freedom look like in Christ? Look at what he says, verse 13. Point one in your notes. Christian, you were called to be free. You were called to freedom, brothers. That's interesting, isn't it? Who needs to be called from freedom? Slaves. But he starts out, he says, you were called to freedom, brothers. This calling is an effectual calling of God. A person gets saved when God effectually calls them. The preacher can call all day long and say, come to Christ, come to Christ, come to Christ. But a person comes when God does the drawing. That's the type of call he's talking about. He's writing to the church, believers, and he says, you were called, God was drawing you to freedom. Brothers. Now that freedom in this context that Paul is speaking of is twofold. It's moral freedom and it's freedom from the law. When we think about what does it mean to be free from the law, uh, some of you have probably been thinking, so Christ comes and then everything God did before doesn't matter anymore. God brings about a new law. How, why does Paul want to get rid of this thing God put in place? Well, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I do want to talk about it a little bit. When we're talking about the law, what Paul is considering, it's helpful to break it into three categories. The civil law that Israel had, the Jews had, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. 
Christians are no longer to live according to the civil law or ceremonial law, but God's moral law cannot change because that would mean that God's morals change. When we become a Christian, we don't cease to care about the things God cares about or about the moral law. Why does the civil law cease to exist? You remember when Jesus was standing before Pilate and Pilate says, are you, a, are you the king of the Jews? Are you a king? Jesus' response is this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not from this world. Jesus said, I'm a different sort of king. If I was a king like the rest of the kings on this earth, the Jews would have never got me before you, Pilate. I would have got my army together and they would have been fighting. The church is not a nation in the sense that it has civil law. The church doesn't have boundary markers that says, this is our land. No, the church spreads across all boundary markers. There's no such thing as a nation that's off limits to the church. But the church doesn't have an army that goes and takes over territories in the way we think of armies. And the church doesn't have civil laws. In fact, in the New Testament, what does Paul tell us in, in Romans 13? But we're to obey the laws of the land. God's sovereign. He put government in place. Second, the ceremonial law. There's two main purposes of this ceremonial law in Israel. The first is to be a sign that points to Christ. Everything that happened in the temple, all the work that the priest did, all the sacrifices, all that is pointing forward to Christ. It's like a sign. Third, the church does not seek to distinguish itself from the Jews and the Gentiles. The ceremonial law was meant to distinguish a Jew from a Gentile. Their robes weren't supposed to have seams in it. Why? There was no moral implication other than God wanted to set apart that these people are a special people that I've chosen different from the rest. So the two purposes of the ceremonial law are to be a sign pointing towards forward to Christ and second, to uh, distinguish the Jews from the Gentiles. Now when Jesus Christ came, Jesus said, I'm not a king like you expect me to be king. I'm not setting up a civil law. Give to Caesar what is Caesar." Don't put my face on a coin. Things are different now. And when it comes to the ceremonial law, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the sacrifices point forward to Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. 
all the offerings point forward to Jesus Christ as the sin offering, offering offered up to God so that you and I can have a relationship with Him. Keeping the Sabbath, resting, is pointing forward to resting in Christ. Christ is our Sabbath rest. The priesthood is pointing towards the great high priest. And the temple is pointing forward to Jesus Christ, the presence of God on earth with us. And the temple and how it looked and with the tree is pointing forward to the kingdom that's coming that Jesus is going to bring about. Now, if the ceremonial law was signs pointing us to Christ and Christ has come, quit, keep, you don't need the signs anymore. That part of the law is done. Christ has come. The point was never in the signs. Laura and I get to go to the Black Hills uh, for our 15th uh, anniversary this week. How foolish would it be if we got to the sign that said Rapid City and we stopped the car and we got out and we like started hugging the sign and said, this anniversary trip is awesome. It's not about the sign. We want to walk on the hills and we want to see the beauty of the trees. You don't need the signs when Christ has come. That part of the law is done. And now that Christ has come, what distinguishes the two groups of people on the earth? It's not Jew or Gentile, but it's those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Who's God's people? God's people are those who trust in Christ. Therefore, you don't need the ceremonial law to distinguish the Jews from the rest of the world when God's people are distinguished by faith in Jesus Christ. So, Jesus has come to set us free from the civil law and ceremonial law of Israel, but Jesus did not come to set us free from the moral law of Israel but rather came so that you and I could actually start to fulfill it. Jesus is the one who fulfilled it perfectly, and only through Him can you and I start to please God morally. And we're going to see that today in, in this text. God does not change the moral law, but rather, now get this, He changes how it's going to be fulfilled. God does not change how He feels morally, but when Christ is come, the way it's going to be fulfilled changes. Here's what uh, we know. The law was external and outside the person and was driven by fear since everyone was in fear of being guilty of it. We find out that we've all broken the moral law. The way people were restrained from murdering 
with the external moral law, do not murder, because God is a judge, was fear. Why do people not commit crimes today? It's not because their heart's pure. It's because they fear an external code, an external law outside of them that promises judgment. Unfortunately, we still do things and still get in trouble from external laws. But that was the law of Moses. The law was good. The problem was it was an external code. And what's our real problem? Our real problem is inside of us. Who's going to come and change me? Paul loved the law of God. The moral law of God. God absolutely wanted Christians to fulfill the law of Christ. Wants us to please God in our lives. But in Christ now, no longer are we changed externally, but we're, in change, we're changed internally. Now as Christians, we no longer live under the external code of the law, but by an internal power that comes from the Holy Spirit. So think of the external law out here, can't change a person inside. Now that Christ has come, there's a power inside of us that God put there when we trusted in Him by faith that actually can change us on the inside. The law never changed anybody's heart. It restrained them from killing somebody, but it couldn't change the nature of a person. The only thing that can make you into a new creation is God Himself through the power of the Holy Spirit as you trust by faith in Christ. That's how a person is freed up. Listen to John 7.37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. No, not out of the heart of a sinful fallen son of Adam. Out of their heart, living waters. And then it says, Now this was said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus said, if you believe in Me, living waters are going to start to flow from within your heart. And the way it's going to happen is by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, as the church is awaiting the arrival of the Spirit that's going to come upon them and live inside them, in Acts 1.4 we read this, And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So when Christ was walking around on earth, after His resurrection, before He ascended uh, up into heaven to the right hand of the Father, He told them, wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, you've heard from Me. 
For John the Baptist baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in verse 8 it says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Wait. You don't have power yet. Wait till the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you're going to have power to be a different type of army. To go to the ends of the earth and be my witnesses to preach the gospel. Not to bring guns and mow down and take over territories that way, but to take over territories in people's hearts that are enslaved to sin and enslaved to selfishness. A good example. So what's this, what's this transition look like? What does it mean that those who trusted in God in the Old Testament loved the law of God? We're supposed to love the law of God, but we're not supposed to be enslaved under the law. But now we're supposed to be free to keep the law. One of the best illustrations, I think, comes right from the Bible itself in Exodus 21. And I got this from John MacArthur pointed this out. In Exodus 21.1, here's what we read. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them, the people of Israel. When you buy a slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. So the rule is, if you buy a Hebrew slave... He's to serve you for six years. At the seventh year, he's free. For nothing. You don't get anything for him. He's free on his own. But then in verse 5 it says, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master. My wife, I love my master, my wife and my children. I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be a slave forever. So if there's a slave that says, I love my master. My master is a good master. I don't want to be free. I'm better off in the care of a good master than going out there. So we're going to go down to the judges of Israel. We're going to go down and we're going to make this official. We're going to put a hole in my ear and I'm going to be your slave forever. What makes that slave do that according to that text? Because he loved his master. That's why... He submitted himself to his master forever. He's, he was free and he used his freedom to do what? To serve his master. He's the most free man there could be. He's going to be taken care of. He's judged. He has a good master before him. Now think of it. The job this guy did for six years, is not going to change. But he was under the law and he had to do it. 
He had no choice. He had to do it. He's going to keep doing the same thing the rest of his life. But at this seventh year, he's doing it not because he has to, but why? Because he wants to. He wants to use his freedom to serve. And that's what it's like for the Christian. When we get saved, we're given freedom and we're free to actually do what a free person should do, which is going to experience the most joy and happiness. And that is the freedom to die to your selfish freedoms and your selfish desires, which have ruined your life up to this point. Second point, after we realize that we're to be free, Christian, do not use your freedom to sin. Look at what it says. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity or occasion for the flesh. In Christ, you are free. But you're not free as though you don't need to care about keeping the moral law anymore. You're free so that you actually can do it. That you actually can start to make progress in killing your selfishness and showing selfless love. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. This is what Christianity gets accused of all the time. It goes like this. So what you're saying is, Jesus went to the cross, He took your sins, past, present, future, on Himself, paid for them, so now you can do whatever the heck you want. Right? No, that's not what the Bible teaches. That would be God saving us into lifelong slavery to selfishness which would destroy us. God's a good God. When He gives us salvation, when He draws us to Himself, He draws us to freedom, not as an excuse to sin. You and I have done this. And if you're a Christian, you've been convicted when you've done it. You begin to reason with your flesh and say, well, I'm going to be forgiven anyways. So what's the big deal if I sin? Or you see the cross and you see your forgiveness, so you don't even think about sin anymore. It's not a big deal. Christ paid, paid the price following the moral law. That doesn't matter. We all can be guilty of doing this. And Paul knew it. The Holy Spirit knew it. That's why it's in this text. And that's why we need to listen to this. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That word opportunity could be occasion. MacArthur says it could mean like a base station. You don't take your... Uh, grace in Christ and build a base to protect sin. That's not how you use your freedom as a Christian. You know, if I... It's a real temptation, though, when we're given freedom to think that here's what we're going to do. Uh, Ella's old enough to watch the girls now. 
when Laura and I go out to dinner. And if I told them, you guys have full freedom. You do whatever you want. My guess is they're going to try a lot of things. They know they shouldn't. But it actually isn't going to go so good. Because if you put four human beings in a room and say you have freedom, and that freedom goes into selfishness, this isn't going to be a time that's going to be that fun. If you've ever watched the show Survivor, it's just like these, these producers are genius if they want drama. They understand something about the human nature because they say this. They get 12 people together and they dangle a big prize in front of them. And they say, only one of you gets this. Now work as a team. Go after it. Well, that's, that's absolute going to be the most vicious, sinful lying and striving and hating. And the gospel is just the opposite. Jesus Christ dies for you and says, here's your righteousness. Here's your identity in Christ. You can't get any more from anyone else. It would be like me entering the game of Survivor and on the front end, they already give me the million bucks. And if I already have the million bucks, I get to be nice to everyone and serve everyone because I already have the reward. That's how Christ frees us up. No person can give you the compliment that adds to what Christ's already given to you. It's all, you have everything. You're a son or daughter in the kingdom of God. You don't, you're not needy for people to add value to your life. In fact, the very people who hurt you, you can turn around and love because you already have everything. Christ frees us from our selfishness so we can serve. But we're tempted to use that freedom for selfishness. Uh, false teachers, how do they work? What, what game plan do they have? Second Peter 2.18, listen to this. For speaking loud, boastful folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. They promise freedom but they themselves are slaves to corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. What does a false teacher do? The false teacher says, I'm, come indulge the flesh. Come indulge your passions. You hear some of these preachers on TV. Come to Christ. You'll get richer and richer and richer and richer. It's all about you. God wants you healthy and rich and everything else. It's all about you. And yet, that poor preacher is enslaved to his own idolatry. Into himself. In Jude 4, here's how we, the, these false teachers are talked about. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designed, are designated for condemnation. Ungodly people, here's what they do, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
False teachers take the grace of God and they say, go run in the flesh. And what are they doing? They're imprisoning you if you follow their teaching. They're absolutely imprisoning you. Tom Schreiner tells a story about his dad. When he turned 18, he started smoking cigarettes. He had freedom. Freedom to do what I want. Later in life, he had health problems. And that thing he was free to do began to enslave him. And he ended up dying of lung disease because his freedom led him to slavery. Because his freedom was used to indulge the flesh. The Spirit comes to help us fight against the flesh so that we can live in true freedom and true righteousness. The Holy Spirit restrains our flesh. Let's just jump ahead a couple verses. Look at Galatians 5, verses 16 through 18. So if you want to live in the flesh and try to keep the law, you're going to be enslaved in that system. There's no power to change. But if you want to walk by the Spirit, look at what it says. Verse 16, Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see that? For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. They're polar opposites. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those who are opposed to each other, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Isn't that amazing? Your flesh is at war against you, Christian, to keep you from doing what you want to do. How many of you in this room want to be unselfish? Raise your hand. If you could push an unselfish button, would you push it right now? I would. What's hindering you? The Spirit is at war against your flesh. And your flesh wants to keep you selfish, self-indulgent, only seeing the world as far as as big as I am. And so we see, and then, and then he says, for they're opposed to each other. Look at verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not, not under the law. When we live by the power of the Spirit, we're freed from our flesh. Now, we should define flesh just quickly. It's not this stuff that's hanging on my bones. There's nothing inherently bad about this. It's dying. It's going to be made alive eternal one day. But there's nothing moral about this. The flesh is talking about the old man, the sinful nature, the heart that desires selfishness, rather than loving God and loving others. So that's what we mean by that. The greatest liberty in the world is to not be selfish. I want to show you something in Romans 13.8. If you have your Bibles, turn here. We're going to look at the goal in Christ, what it looks like to be freed from the flesh. Romans 13.8 Owe no one anything 
except to love each other. For the one who loves another, what does it say? Has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Think about that for a minute. Adultery is selfish. Murder is selfish. Stealing is selfish. Coveting is selfish. Any other commandment God gives that we want to break? We see the slavery to our selfishness in there. But to keep those commandments is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer now, or nearer to us now than when we first believed. I love that concept. You're closer to Christ today than you were yesterday. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in, in indulging of the flesh. Look at what he says. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality. Not in sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. And jealousy. But, look at verse 14. This is key. Put on... The Lord Jesus Christ, that means by faith, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You see, those are polar opposites. If you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If you put on Christ and become like Christ, you know what you become like? Selfless love and action. Is that not how Christ lived? Look at point three. Use your freedom to love. He said, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather on the positive, through love, serve one another. The opposite of Indulging your flesh with sin, serve others. Guys, if you're looking at pornography, you're not loving others. It's all about you. You're enslaved to this rotten thing that's eating you out on the inside. Ladies as well, the, the, the rise in ladies enslaved to pornography is, ra is raising up. Look at the selfishness. You're alone. You're all by yourself doing this thing that's destroying you so that when you walk into life with your family, you're like a shell of a man or a shell of a woman that's being destroyed by slavery. But use your freedom in Christ, your forgiveness in Christ, not to make you say, oh, I can go look at a bunch more porn or I can go commit adultery. I'm going to be forgiven. But rather, use your freedom in Christ to love others. 
Freedom is meant to empower selfless love that serves. Jesus was the most free human being who ever lived. He had more joy than any human being who ever lived. Yes, He suffered more than any human being that ever lived. He had the freedom to die. To give His life as a ransom for many. To lay down His life for His friends. To live His whole life to keep the will of the Father. That's how free Jesus was. Because then if we look at verse, our Romans 14, verse 1, the very next verse from what we were just looking at. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. The one who believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Or one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So, What's going on is there's brand new Christians who have been, and they're Jews, and they've been keeping the law their whole life. Uh, keeping the ceremonial law, only eating certain meats. So what are we supposed to do, those of us who understand our freedom in Christ? We're supposed to love them, and here's how you love them. Uh, the one who is weak in faith, the one who thinks you can only eat certain meats, they haven't found their freedom in Christ yet to the fullness, welcome him. Do not quarrel over opinions with him. The one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he is given thanks, while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And then in verse 13, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And then in verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So what does this have to do with anything? How is a Holy Spirit-filled Christian supposed to live? If I understand the Gospel clearly, I understand I can eat pork now. Half the problem is, is half my Jewish brothers that just became Christians are convicted that they still need to keep the Sabbath. Saturday and not Sunday, and only eat certain meats. And you want to know what love does? Love doesn't go make an argument with the person who doesn't understand yet. That's a weak brother. A weak brother is a legalistic brother that's having trouble pulling away from the law. But God has saved them, and it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. But what we're supposed to do is to never put a stumbling block in front of a brother Because love fulfills the law. 
Jesus Christ died for that weak brother. Am I going to judge him? He's not mine. He's Christ's. No, what I'm going to do is I'm going to love him. Therefore, if he's convicted that he can never drink a beer, then you know what? I'm not going to drink a beer. Why? Love. I don't drink. Someone asked me why. It's not because I can point to a verse that says you don't drink a beer. People will be offended if I drink a beer. It's a fact. Therefore, love ought to overrule my freedom that I have. I could drink it. The Bible says I can. Can't get drunk, but I could drink it. But what does love do? Love doesn't go get in an argument with them, but rather loves them, honors them, so that there will be peace in the body. Use your freedom not to be selfish, not just for yourself, but to love others. That's how it happened in their day. We need to bring it to our context. Um, Let's look at verse 14. For the law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't it amazing? All the rules we want to make. It's so easy. (laughs) Happens in every church. Christians who are saved by grace, who are free in Christ, we all have our opinions. We all have the rules that we're tempted to make. Maybe tempted to bring to the pastor and say, let's put this in our statement of faith. Let's make this our battle cry. Let's be honest. We would all do it the way we would want to do it, right? But the law is fulfilled. How concerned are we with actually fulfilling the law, which is loving our brothers, not putting a stumbling block between us and them and them and Christ? And so we see... Romans 7, 12, Paul loved the law. He said, so the law is holy, the commandment is holy. It's righteous and good. And then in verse 4, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You've died to the law so that you could belong to a person. To Him who raised you from the dead in order that we may bear fruit. That's why Jesus died for you. That you can... Bear fruit for God. Kill selfishness. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in the members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I hope you're starting to see the freedom in Christ in the old way, external law, if you put a big, here, here's an illustration MacArthur gave. If you, if you put a new big Christian, or, uh, pitcher window in your house and you put a big sign out on the lawn that says, don't throw rocks at the window. And the guy across the street puts a brand new pitcher window up and he doesn't put a sign up. Where are you placing your bets the first rock's going to be thrown at? 
the one with the sign. That's what the external law does. But now in Christ, the internal, our, the Holy Spirit comes inside us so that we actually want to follow the very thing that used to tempt us to sin, to, to draw us to sin. Finally, look at verse 15. Let's say we ignore killing our selfishness by the power of the Spirit and we decide to use our freedom for our own opinions. Here's what will happen. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Christ saved you to serve each other. You should, when you come to church, it's not an individual thing. You come to worship together to sing songs to each other in worship to God, to speak hope to each other. You did not come to bite and devour each other, but Christ saved you so that you can actually desire your brother in Christ that has a different opinion that they might get their way rather than you get your way. Isn't it a good warning? If you use your freedom the wrong way, the church will end up eating itself up from the inside. So my prayer is, for my life, all the selfishness I see, that God would, in the power of the Holy Spirit, as I trust in transforming grace by faith, your pastor will get less selfish. You can pray for me that way. My prayer for you is the same thing. And when that happens, you want to know what sets apart the church from the world? It's not some robe. It's not some ritual. It's selfless love. A new life springs of living water flowing from the inside. Father, I pray that you do this in our lives. Thank you that Christ not only saves us from the devil, saves us from the Father's wrath, but saves us from the sin that clings so closely to us that you save us from ourself and you create a new creation. Praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen.